0: Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with episode 119 of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the international best-selling British author Rosamund Pilcher, whose most famous novels, The Shell Seekers*, September and Coming Home, have all had successful screen adaptations. Rosamund died in 2019 at the age of 94. This interview took place in 1999, at her home in Scotland, and I began by asking her if writing was a gift she'd inherited.
1: My father wrote. My father worked out in the Far East to sort of make... Well, as an extra hobby. He used to do a column in the Rangoon paper, and that was about as far as it was, really. No, I had sort of a painter or two in the background, but basically not a madly artistic or musical family, no. What was your father doing in the Far East? Yeah, He was running the port in Rangoon, and he'd been in the Navy, and he was... They called him a conservator. He was the man who ran all the dredgers and kept mm. the, the body free of mud, you know. Mm. And he was out there for about, oh, a long time, about four, 14 years, I think.
0: So if they weren't great writers, were they great readers, your family?
1: Yes, and very, yes, great readers, and... We were brought up in a house absolutely filled with books, old books, new books, and my father was, he didn't play anything, but he collected an enormous collection of classical records all over through his life, all of which were beautifully catalogued and kept, and there must have been about 400 of them, so he did love
0: music. Mm. Were you quite taken then by the sort of the music and the books and so on
1: Yes, because there wasn 't really very much else you know we didn 't have don't anything we ever had a wireless we lived in England, my mother and my sister and I, my father was away, but yes, books were very important, and also you know living in Cornwall, we were out all the time we were never in the house, mm. so we were very lucky and we had marvelous places to play and you know, sea and estuaries and water and everything, and just had a good time. It sounds an idyllic childhood, was it? I think it was. I think we missed a father. I think we missed the coming and going of of a man, and I think a wife on her own is inclined to become very dogmatic when she is a single parent. And it was always wonderful when he came home, you know, just for such a little time, and then he would be off again. And that was when good things happened. I suppose it was, in a way, you'd say it was rather dull. But, um, no, it was a good way to be brought up.
0: Were you born in the West Country as
1: well? Because I understood you were born up here. No. Uh, my mother, My mother, in fact, comes came from Orkney, so she was Scottish. And my father's family really came from south of Edinburgh, a house called Bave Law, which was Scots. That my, was my, my maiden name. And then, I think, about 17 something or other, they all lost their lands and their money and they sold up. And the family seemed to just jump onto the East India bandwagon and there were always grandfathers, -grandfathers, great-grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers went back and were always
0: all in the Far East. What sort of books were you encouraged to read as a child?
1: Well, I wasn't ever uh, disencouraged to read anything. Mm. So I started off with comics. I read very early and picture books and wonderful things called annuals which the comics used to bring out every mm. year which were wonderful value I think of them now three and six you've got a lovely great big fat book that practically lasted you through the year mm. and I would never stop a child reading anything like that because it all gets you going and comics were a wonderful way because you read the little thing and then you looked at the picture mm. and um, I think that's how I started And then I read, I was reading grown-up books quite early on because sometimes there wasn't anything else to read, you know. But we never got given a mass of new books. I know I had a girlfriend who was an only child and every year she got lovely new Arthur Ransom books and all those. I used to be very jealous of her. But basically we we were okay for reading matter.
0: Was Arthur Ransom a big favourite of yours, or were there any other children's authors you really favoured?
1: No, I loved E. Nesbitt. I had all—I used to say about buy all the E. Nesbitt books, I had all of them in a rather nice edition, which I think Blackie turned out, which had blue bindings. And um, I loved them. They got me through a sort of gap in my reading because they were very sympathetic and they were very funny and they were also very historically good stories. And then I think when I was about 13, I read Rebecca, and away I went, and I didn't read children's books anymore after that.
0: That was the Cornish magic touch, was it? It
1: wasn't quite that. It was just everybody was talking about it, and all the grown-ups were talking about it. And I thought, I must read this book, so I got hold of a copy and read it. And I still think it's a wonderful story. Did you ever get to meet Daphne du Maurier? No, nobody ever did. (laughs) But funnily enough, last time I was in Cornwall, I had a girlfriend staying with me who knew the present lady, Rashley. And the Rashleys always owned Menabilly. And when they said to du Maurier, you know, we, we want it back now, she was terribly, terribly, terribly annoyed about it. And, of course, she had spent... She'd saved it that house. she'd spent a lot of money on it just keeping it alive and going she didn't do anything like put central heating in or new bathrooms but you know she just kept a new roof and that sort of thing she spent a lot of money anyway there was I think there was a certain amount of ill feeling but the Rashleys moved back and then the Rashley, who had done this he died and so the next in line was Richard Rashley, who in fact is Sir Richard Rashley. So somehow the house and the title have come together again, having not been together for a long time. And they're living there now. And so we went over and went all over it and had tea. and It was really fascinating, mm. but I would not it something I would take on
0: myself. Did you ever try and meet Daphne de Maurier?
1: No, no, no. She was a very, very reclusive. a reclusive person, mm. yes, yes. Mm. Very reclusive. I mean, even people who lived nearby never saw her. Um, I think every now and again she emerged for some charity that she felt strongly about. Mm. Margaret Foster wrote very well about her. Very well. Very sympathetically, I thought.
0: Was she an influence upon your own writing, do you think?
1: Oh, I think... No. No, I don't think she was, because I've always written contemporary fiction, and hers were mostly steeped in the past. And I don't actually read historical books. Well, Rebecca, of course, was a modern one, and there were one or two others. And I certainly couldn't write one because I don't have that sort of an imagination. I mean, I can't go into a room in a story without knowing how it looks or how it smells or exactly how it feels. and I haven't got the sort of imagination that can go back into the past. Do you think your views
0: of Cornwall were quite similar,
1: though? No, I think hers was far more steeped in history than mine. I mean, she loved going into old graveyards and then immediately had a wonderful novel from just reading a headstone. And I think she was very, very... She lived very closely with the past. I think she was very aware of the past and the history of the Civil War and everything. I was never like that. I was never a great history person. And I think my my Cornwall really is is just the place, more the country and the sea and the places
0: rather than the people who live there It certainly would seem to be a very inspirational place for a writer Is that what first got you hooked? Well, it, an awful lot of things
1: um, One of them was that we lived very near St Ives and St Ives was filled with very creative people. They were painters but there were also potters and Writers and musicians and composers and poets, all are very well established down there. And, of course, we knew them all because probably my mother knew them or we, had, we were at school or at parties with their children, you know. And everybody knew everybody. There weren't the great crowds of people down there like there are now. And I think that did influence me, probably, the rather esoteric atmosphere and going around all the studios and going to have tea with people and then going out and surfing out of the studio window onto the beaches and everything so I think I think painting in a funny way was my first influence but I could never paint I wasn't I
0: didn't have the talent and so
1: it sort of streamed into writing
0: it said that you started writing short stories at the age of seven. Is that right? No, I I just
1: wrote stories right away. Yes, I used to love writing stories. I did it. Do you remember your first story? Do you remember the first story you ever wrote? No. <laughs> I think I probably wrote a play, right. uh, funnily enough. I think I, in a notebook, I think I probably wrote a play. I loved the look of the construction of a play mm. with the name and the bit of dialogue. I always thought that was fascinating, that you were telling a story without any description but by the time I was about 14 I thought I'm going to write I can't paint so I shall write I wanted to have something that I could express myself and so I then really started reading market reading reading magazines and because I thought that was obviously the way to break in just by doing it you know not trying to set out and write the
0: brilliant novel but to learn the craft really so even at that tender age, you were thinking in terms of a career in yes. writing? Mm, I was. It's very unusual for a young girl, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think it is, but I
0: think that... I just think that I just
1: had, had this compulsion to write. Do you think it's also a vocation? Yeah, I think so. I think it was a vocation, and it uh, wasn't encouraged by my mother, who never encouraged anything, which I think in a way is right because you must never drive a child into doing something. You'll hate it if you tell it to go and write a story. But my father was always very supportive in, his, in a very laid-back way. He was, you know, he always used he to write me a letter every single week, and he was always interested in what I was doing and
0: encouraging, and he continued to be, really, until the day he died. Did a lot of people tell you when they read your letters or whatever, or your stories, that you really had a very special gift, even at a very early age? Not so much letters, I think. But by the time I was
1: sort of in what I would call upper school, you know, 14, I was streets ahead of everybody else in English because I'd read so much and and all those sorts of things. And i always got enormously good marks for compositions and essays and
0: everything. But nobody ever said, you you know, you should do it as a living. Do you think it's something which is very much a natural gift, you either got it or you haven't? Yes, I think. I
1: don't know how anyone can be taught to write. You can be taught to construct. But I think, too, uh, writing is a tremendous discipline. The two go together. I mean, it's all very well, having brilliant... You know how many, you probably haven't had it, but people come up to you and say, when I started, and started writing for Woman and Home and everything, and they'd say, oh... I read it under the hairdryer. You are lucky. I wish I had the time to do something like that, a little hobby like that. I mean, I've learnt, I learnt to live with that at a very early age from anybody. and
0: um, Through gritted teeth, I mm. imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah mm. but, you know, it doesn't mm. matter anyway. Mm. And I just knew that if I was writing and selling, I was doing OK. And even if it wasn't very brilliant, I was doing a commercial thing. It was my way of earning money and it had to be a sort of compromise between one's own ability and, and this need to to earn money.
0: So throughout your last few years at school, you were always determined to become a novelist, were you? A writer.
1: I think short stories was really my metier. I was brilliant at them. I, could, I just used to churn them out when my children were little. And it's quite a difficult form of writing, but I just completely got the knack of it, I think, through reading a lot of short stories in magazines and sort of analyzing them, a lot of American ones. I used to get sent American magazines by my aunt, who lived in Philadelphia, and they were wonderful. You know, the best short stories in the world were American ones. The English ones were still a bit boy meets girl, blah, 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 but the American ones always had a tremendous pace to them even if it was a love story it was always funny or sad or had a tremendous twist at the end so i learned a lot from that and it is a very
0: good way to start writing i think what's the key to a good short story
1: well you know the old thing beginning middle and end i think i always see everything in terms of paintings i think a short story is a very rough sketch with maybe three central characters that's all drawn in the front and then a little bit of little bit of middle ground which might have a dog in it or something and then just nothing in the background you know no big descriptions very intimate and very quick and no adjectives or anything but dialogue used very sparingly no not sparingly dialogue used but every word important as to a production of character Really, a short story is an idea or a truth, and you build around that. You don't start off with, well, there's this girl, and then she meets this chap. It's something like, you know, nothing's ever going to be as you think it's going to be, or okay. something like that, just a, almost like a little moral or a proverb. And you just need to get that, and then you could build the story around it. But it must, at the end of the day, send a message
0: When and where was your first short story published? Uh, It was published in Woman and Home,
1: which was still going then. And I wrote it when I was out in Salon during the war. I was out there for about three years, three and a half years, the end of the war, and I just suddenly... I had already written and submitted short stories and had them sent back, but with very nice, not with just a rejection note, you know, with a very encouraging letter... So I I had the feeling that I was on the right track. They said, you've nearly got it. You haven't quite got it yet. Anyway, I wrote this little short story. I can't even remember what it was about. Um, Sent it home to my father, and he sent it to Woman and Home, and they bought it. It was great. (laughs) Fifteen (laughs) guineas. Was that a great feeling of Ah, achievement? It was the best feeling ever in the world when you sell your first story because you know then that you've cracked it Mm. even if it's
0: just a little teeny edge of the wedge Mm. in the door you know you can do it was there a common theme or common characters even to your first lot of short stories no everybody came from
1: sort of different backgrounds and all that sort of thing and I had a great experience of—I can't hate that word, the lower classes—because you know, living in Cornwall, there had always been a couple of maids in the house, and one always went home with them if they wanted you on their day off. And then you go into these lovely little, sort of either a miner's cottage or a dirty little farm cottage, and with the lavatory out the back, and everybody sitting around eating enormous teas and. It was just so cosy and nice. I used to love it. And, I, you know, I was always able to talk to them. Mm. And so one was never brought up with this terrible feeling of frigidity when you met somebody. I, I was always very close to them all. And in the village, I knew everybody, and I went into all their houses and chatted. and You know, all the, the men who worked around the village were our friends, like the coal man and the man who delivered the trunks from the station... And we knew all their names and were always welcome in their houses, you know. So that, I think, was a very important thing to learn, so that I was never... And I didn't go to a very snob school or anything like that. I was always perfectly easy with people from all walks of life, which I think I was very fortunate, because it it was a time when people were terribly class-conscious...
0: How often were your stories based on real events and real people and how much were from your imagination?
1: Well, I think, you know, if I'd been three years in, in the services, I'd met an enormous number of people, thousands and thousands of handsome young men and lots and lots of pretty girls and lots of quite interesting older people. And although I didn't write about the war per se, I would use them or the way they looked or as a character in a story, change the name.
0: When did you first start of doing, well, first start thinking about doing novels and longer stories?
1: Well, I, I wrote my first little book when I was about 26, and I had it published by Mills and Boone, but they didn't pay very much in those days. But the thing is that if I was going to make any money out of them, I had to sell it to a magazine as a serial. So basically, I was still writing for magazines. I wasn't really writing a novel. I was still writing something in like six or seven different serialisations that would go on for seven months. Also, one had to be very, very pure and holy and not talk about divorce or horse racing or anything. Like it was hysterical, really, when you think about it. And if girls went to parties, they put on pretty frocks mm. and hats, you know. Mm. But, you know, the, it all grew as I grew up. I mean, you do, you can't... I Somebody... I had never been to university like me, doesn't have the experience to write a very deep book. And I always had little kids under my feet anyway. But I just beavered on. And as as I say, as I became more experienced and read more, the books got better. Mm. But I never stopped writing. I was writing the whole time, all the time I was writing. And making, maybe first year I made about 500 pounds and the second year I made about 700 pounds. I've still got all the little books, and it's never, never regressed. It just became a very good source of income, because I could do it quite quickly.
0: Did you get into a routine whereby perhaps you worked for four hours in the morning from six o'clock? I
1: couldn't, not with all these children. And in holiday times, it just closed down, and I was with them all the time. But I worked quite well. I mean, I used to wait till they'd gone to school and then I could write half a short story and then I'd go and get them and write the other half of the short story the next day. And it was much easier than actually writing novels with all so many distractions.
0: A lot of writers seem to have problems disciplining themselves, that that's always the big thing. They need to set themselves a certain time of the day and so on. But that's not the case with you then?
1: No, I can write... Or I can't write in the evening when I'm tired. But basically, I can... If I'm writing, I'm never stopping. I'm doing other things, but I'm still working. I become a bit distrayed sometimes, but I can't work for about more than, really, than about three hours. I've never been able to. I get tired and stale. You could usually sneak three hours out of the day somewhere. So you've never worked for more than three hours a day. You've,
0: you've Not produced at a lot stretch.
1: of work. Not oh. at a stretch. Yeah. I might work another three hours in the afternoon. Yeah. But I mean I can't sit at a typewriter for 8 hours on end creating it's mm. far too tiring. I need to have a break from
0: it. Is there a special time of the day when you're better at writing than In others? The morning. Yeah.
1: Mm. I think everybody thinks that. Don't they? Mm. they always say that. The mind's fresh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm. Are you one of these pernickety writers who has to have so many pencils beside no, the...
1: No, nothing li- no, nothing like that. I like a sort of clean, tidy desk. I don't like working in a filthy desk, you know, with everything all over the place. I like, so, That's a much order. But um, I spread papers all over the floor and all over the bed and where, wherever I can, yeah. you know. I'm quite disciplined once I
0: get yeah. going. I went to America to interview Jackie Collins a few years ago and even now she writes out all her books in longhand. I can't believe it. It's extraordinary.
1: But maybe that's just the way she works. Mm. I could never write in longhand. I could only write on a typewriter. I couldn't create in longhand. I liked seeing the lines of print. And then I felt I was really... Writing a book.
0: <laughs> I can't believe you're still writing with a typewriter, though. Are you? Have you got a computer yet? Have you I've succumbed? got a word processor now, yes. I wore
1: out all the typewriters, and I couldn't get another one because mm. they stopped making them. Nobody wanted them anymore.
0: So when did you succumb to the computer age?
1: After I'd finished coming home. I wrote Coming Home on an old Steam typewriter. And then I thought it was falling to bits. I th- thought, this is ridiculous. I really got to. So when I... I didn't want to get one in the middle of creating... So I thought I've got to get used to it and come to terms with it, and then I'll start writing again. So that's what I've done, actually.
0: And are you now
1: wondering how on earth you managed with no, the typewriter? No, I'm not. I like, like my old typewriter. I like the way I could work on it. I felt much more in charge than I do on this one, but it's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm over the hump now. Mm. Some writers get quite
0: romantic about typewriters, don't they? The smell of the ribbon and all sorts of yeah, things. Yeah,
1: and the feel and the mm. smell of the ink when you mm. take it out of the thing and you know you're going back to work again. It's mm. a good feeling. So sort of basic. And I used to love the noise it made, too. Mm. That always... This is far too quiet.
0: <laughs> what would you say is your biggest breakthrough as a writer? Was it The Shell
1: Seekers? Well, it's apparently the biggest, but I think the biggest was... I can't remember which came first... Um, I really had always wanted to get into the American short-story market, and I never had. I didn't have an agent out there. I didn't have an agent out there. But Felicity, she became my agent within Curtis Brown, and she had a lot of strings in America because she'd worked out there for a long time. And she had lunch with this guy called Tom McCormack who is the president or was the president of St. Martin's Press. And he said her, she said, you know, you've got, what could I do for you? And he said, if you've got a, a list of sort of middle-of-the-road books that we could buy a backlist, sort of easy reading uh, but not trashy. She said, yes, I've got the very thing. So St. Martin's Press bought eight of my backlist, maybe six, six or eight, something like that, going back not as far as Mills and Boone, but Collins, who were my next publishers. And they were all quite... I mean, they were quite good little, very light books, light fiction, not very big. And they bought them all and published them. And for some extraordinary reason, the New York Times got hold of one of them and gave it terribly, terribly good review. I don't know why the literary editor picked up this little book, but he did. But it was a fantastic review, And after that, people became interested. And I started selling short stories to the United States magazines and got another nought on the end of the cheque. You know, it was wonderful. And then I moved in with St Martins and became one of their writers, and I've been with them ever since.
0: So on the strength of one excellent review, it all changed for you. It did,
1: yeah. It was quite extraordinary. I think they were probably would have taken a little longer. I think I would have still done it. But that really was the beginning of the better times. That was when I really began to feel that maybe somebody was enthusiastic about my writing and was treating me as a writer and was very anxious to have more. And that was,
0: in a way, the first time that had ever happened. Can I just ask you about Mills and Boon. How do you feel about Mills & Boone and their reputation? Well, I mean, they're providing something that people want,
1: Mm. that's it. Then I'm making a lot of money. They pay their writers really quite a lot of money. And they were very sweet, sort of very old-fashioned firm. But uh, there there definitely came a time when I moved out of there. I grew up, Mm. you know, and I said, I don't think perhaps I can go on writing books for you anymore. And they said, no, that's fine, you've done okay by us, there are lots more coming along. And uh, so I was with Collins for quite a long time, but it was a difficult time. I think Sir William had just died, and I think the firm was very, very overspread, and they published my sort of books, which were light fiction, sort of almost like pornography, you know, with terrible book jackets, and so they were ashamed of them. And I used to say, you know, if if you're going to treat the book, I say, don't print it. You know, don't put your name to it if you feel like this about it. Anyway, it sort of dithered on for a bit and then I got this offer from St Martin's and I couldn't be seen for dust, I just went.
0: You mentioned names just now. Rosmond Pilcher is your real name?
1: Yes, my husband's name's Pilcher, and oh. Mrs Pilcher. But when I wrote for Mills and Boone, I had a pen name because I'd started in the, when I was in the service and, of course, we weren't allowed to publish anything because of mm. the Official Secrets Act. So I had to have a pen name, so I called myself Jane Fraser... God knows why. And that was fine. And the, But when I, by the time I got to Collins, I thought, I'm going to shed this image. I'm going to move into a new thing and be myself. And so I've just written under my own name ever since. What was your first successful novel? Well, I think probably this little one that they liked so much, which was called Sleeping Tiger, which was quite funny and quite crisp and quite sophisticated and the happy ending and everything. But it was sort of set in spain or somewhere and it was quite really quite a funny book do you ever read your early works now no not much no sometimes i dig them out and or give them to my grandchildren to read they like them mm. <laughs> tell us about the shell seekers and how that came about well by then i was 60 and tom dunn who by then had his own imprint within st martin's press as a publisher he has his own it's called a Thomas dunn book. He was over here and he said, you know, we've come to a sort of time when you've really got to... We're selling honourably, we're doing all right, but I think we could do bigger and better than this. I said, what do you want? He said, I want a really big book. I don't want a little slim volume. And I want it a good long read, you know, for women. And so I thought, oh, Lord, I'd never written a big book, not a proper big book. So I... I had three sort of themes going around in my head, and I thought I would put one of them into a book one day. Um, one was really going back before the war, which I'd never done. I'd never written about before the war, which was like another world. I wanted to write about the sort of people I'd known in St Dyes, which I call upper-class bohemians, you know. So I find very attractive uh, sort <coughs> of people. And the other one I wanted to write about was the terrible things that the prospect of money or legacies can do to the nicest families. So I sort of just put all three together and it sort of simmered around for a bit and then suddenly it all took shape in my mind and it really worked out. I don't think I did any rewriting at all. I wrote out a, a synopsis and the way everything there were a lot of flashbacks in it where the flashbacks came and i just wrote it according to that and at the end all i wrote a little they wanted me to write a little prologue which i did but apart from that it was more or less the way it stood did the success of that book surprise you Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Very much. Because by the time I'd it, took me two years to write it. and By the time I'd finished it, you know, as you always do, you think this is the worst book anybody's ever written. And when you read it through 33 times through and done all the copy editing and everything. And Tom <coughs> didn't give it a lot of hype. He just sent it out to all the booksellers and sort of said, this is rather an old-fashioned type of book but I think it's the sort of thing people are quite ready to read and one of the reasons I think it was so successful was that we hit a backswing there'd been it was just at the time when everybody was writing Sex and Shopping and Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz and you know terrific good Mm. fun but there had been an awful lot of them and the market had got a bit saturated and I had always said you know there's a huge market out there which is what I call light reading for intelligent ladies women who are well educated, they're maybe a bit older They maybe their husbands have retired, hopefully they've got a bit more money, a bit more time, but they don't want I mean, they're not mad on reading about sex and shopping because that's all behind them, They, they really want something that they can relate to and it just got on the bestseller list within about a week without any big advertising or anything and it just stayed there. I don't think it ever got to the top. It just stayed in the middle for about a year or two years.
0: Can you put your finger on exactly why it became the sensation that it did? No, but uh, it was very successful in America before it w- was here. But it just
1: Germany was the extraordinary market. I mean, it's incredible how well the books do out in Germany. Anyway, uh, but in America, I think it was such relief people to read about a family that really was rather tiresome you know I think um, you know how Americans send you those awful letters at Christmas and it says Junior's doing so well mm. and sister's had her baby and everything sweetness and light and let's all have a lovely Christmas together in fact everybody has a awfully painful time with their mm. kids you know children can be hell and they come through it and you never stop loving them but you do stop liking them quite mm. often I think and I think it was such relief for people to read about a perfectly normal woman who was being driven lamented by these wretched children who weren't, I mean, they weren't villains or drug addicts or anything. They were just being tiresome. And I think that was one of the ways people could relate to the book.
0: Did you feel the success of The Shell Seekers put a lot of pressure on you for subsequent work?
1: Yes, oh yes, it did. It did. And it also... Uh, Suddenly finding oneself successful, it was quite nerve-wracking. I was very aware of the fact that we were not in the first flush of youth, and if there was going to be a good deal of money, which there was, we had to be very, very sensible about it, very, very quickly. So we, we did quite a lot of, not exactly trusts and things, but I gave September and coming home to my children before either of them was written. And um,
0: when you say you gave them, you gave them the rights rights
1: before either book was written. Mm. And so they've had everything from the two second books, which is good because they're all middle aged now. And, you know, if you suddenly get knocked over by a bus and you leave all this sort of money behind, it's just crazy. You're much better to. (laughs) <laughs> spread it out mm. so that that all those sort of things rather took the, the fun out of it one just had to suddenly sit down and be terribly, terribly businesslike
0: If you were to be knocked over by a bus you would probably be best remembered for The Shell Seekers but which book would you most like to be best remembered for? I think for? The Shell Seekers actually mm. because I wrote in it I wrote about a lot of things that really
1: meant an awful lot to me one of them was Cornwall another was Paintings and the interesting way, the value of a painting can, you know, fascinated by the sort of the art world. And I don't know, just the young people I liked writing about and the war. And it was, when I'd finished it, I said to Tom, I don't really ever need to write another book because I've said it all now. It's down on paper. Of course, I wasn't
0: allowed to stop. But I think it would be The Shell Seekers. Mm. Mm. September, you sat in Scotland... Was that a big thing, to move your... It was
1: a much more objective book. Both September and Coming Home were rather subjective books. But um, I came up here when I was married, and it's a very, very different culture. still is, actually. And so I wrote about it rather as a voyeur. I had to be very careful. It was rather an interesting exercise, because it was all about Perthshire, all about round here and the people and the sort of way people live... And I had to be very careful that nobody could ever put a name to anybody or say, oh, that's her house or my house. So it was rather like writing a mystery puzzle. It was good fun. But again, I think it worked because it was just that old theme of a lot of people coming together for a certain event. And by the time they all part again, all their lives have changed. It's an old theme for a book.
0: But it was um, quite a fun one to, to
1: write about.
0: Coming Home was TV dramatised. Was Mm. that something you were really thrilled about?
1: Yes. September was done as well. I think September was, in a funny way, my favourite because it was a very accurate script. And the book, in fact, didn't have that number of people in it, so they didn't have to cut down the cast. The book only took up four months of time, and in four months you don't have this huge cast of characters that you do if you're writing about ten years which Coming Home was. Coming Home was 1935 to 1945, but September was just the four months of the summer when they were all getting ready for this dance. So you didn't get this enormous cast of characters, and in a way I think it was much easier screenplay to write. It was very good, I
0: thought. You mentioned earlier the relief you feel when you finally get a book finished, you stop all the editing and everything else. But then when you're given a TV dramatisation, adaption to do, you must think, oh, no, we'll start no, all over again. I don't again? do it, you see. Right. No,
1: I just... I have nothing to do with that because I'm not a s- scriptwriter. So I just hand the whole thing over like a baby. With Coming Home, obviously, I did have a certain amount of say, and certainly with this new one,
0: mm.
1: I did too, because I didn't want my characters to be misrepresented or anything which they weren't actually
0: the sequel to coming home nanchero has not been a book has it it's straight no. to screen mm,
1: no no there was some talk of writing it but you know it takes me two years i could never have done it so i just i just eased out
0: now you're famous for having the sort of frank sinatra comeback syndrome you've often said this is my last book and yet you've been enticed to write another one
1: well, I, I never, never said that till I'd finished coming home because I had to write September and coming home because I signed a contract that I would. After that, I wouldn't sign a contract. I've got a handshake on it, but I won't sign anything. And I'm the moment I'm about halfway through a novel for Tom, but I don't quite know when it'll be finished. <laughs> May we know roughly what that's about, or is that a secret? Um, well, I'm not sure. It isn't rather gloomy. It's about, again, five people different ages, an older couple, a sort of 30s, 40s couple and a child, all of them with problems of loneliness or rejection or age or the man's lost his child in a terrible car spash. And they all find themselves in one house up in the north of Scotland over Christmas. And none of them want Christmas. But by the time it comes, all the sort of... Everything's been smoothed over slightly, you know, and there is a way ahead. More hopeful. It's more hopeful. But it is quite, I'm realising, I've just written a very sort of gloomy bit. And I've got to perk it up and get some young people in and liven it up a bit, you know, because I always say no book can be all gloom, because life isn't like that. Life isn't all gloom, oddly enough. And it isn't all sweetness and light. It's a sort of mixture. And Terribly funny things happened at the most awful moments, like at funerals. Mm. I always think that that is how you should write your book.
0: Do you have a working
1: title and a deadline for no, this I book? I haven't got a working title, and I haven't got a deadline mm. either. <laughs> I'm just beavering quietly away by myself.
0: Yeah. Do you think this will be your last book, or is there still more?
1: I have no idea. Mm. I have no idea. Every time I say no, I can't. I won't do it again. But, in fact, I'm far more focused when I'm working mm. if I'm not working I wander around and fiddle about and don't really achieve anything whereas if I'm working I'll say oh, well, I'll do this and then I'll go and do that and then I'll do something else and I get far more actually achieved mm. you know I suppose it's just the way I'm made I've done it all my life it's all the funny feeling saying I'm going to stop it and I miss the privacy of my own little space my space and my typewriter and that sort of thing and also enjoy the other things much more if you're working. Having a lunch party is much more fun if you've been stuck in your office all week. I mean, it's like coming out.
0: Mm-hmm. Your son has just written a book, hasn't he? <laughs> yes.
1: Is that a great source of pride to you? Yes, it is. It's a great source of pride. I'm very proud of him indeed. He's a great ideas man, very, very creative, but I wasn't sure if he'd have the, the stamina and the application, but he did, and he did it, and he got it published. So I'm really thrilled. Do you see similarities to your own writing in his? I think he's funnier than me, and he's obviously sort of sexier. He's a younger man's book, you know, and he's done a lot of very painstaking research. But it's basically a relationship book, the same sort of thing. A lot of children he writes about very well, and it's a good plot. No, it's a good book. And to what extent did he come to you for advice? Not at all. Really? No, only once or twice. Uh, and that was what I call constructional advice. It wasn't mm. creative advice, you know. It was how do I get myself out of this hole and into the next bit, mm. which is, sometimes can be terribly difficult. And I don't want to write, go on writing for pages, and yet I've got to tell everybody so much. That sort of thing I was able to help. But I only went down, I think once and then when all of course all the copy editing came back he said have have I got to type it all again I said no (laughs) but no he did it all on his own do you think he's got what it takes now I do I wasn't sure before but now I know he has I mean I always knew as I say he's the great ideas man of all times very full of ideas and brilliant plots and things but once you start putting it down on paper it's turns into a tedious job
0: do you think it's been tough for your family with you being so successful
1: i think it was tough for robin because we, we live very near and he's been terribly good about it because was what he would he was wanting to do you know but on the other hand i would never not have gone on and on as i have for them because i think that i'm more important than what i want to do and I don't think it's being selfish at all. I think it's being sensible. No, basically, I think they think it's all a gas. And the difficult thing is having rather an unusual name. Because mm. when they sign checks and everything, people say, are you any relation to Rosmond Pilter? Mm. Yes, yeah, sir. Mm. <laughs> May I know how you met your husband? Yes, because I met him at this house. Because right. uh, I'd come back from Salon, 1946. In 1946 I came back, and he'd been terribly, terribly badly wounded after the uh, Highland Division crossed the Rhine. He was still on crutches, I think, or he was just off crutches. Anyway, he'd gone down to stay with his granny, a little bit of recuperation. And I'd known all the family, sort of. They used to come down for the summer holidays, you know. So we met again, and we got married about two months later. Was it a sort of Mills and Boone-style romance? Not really, no. It was just, I think... Both of us were ready to settle down, and I liked the Cornish connection. You know, that, to me, was really more important than anything else. And I'd never got emotionally entangled with anybody during the war because I thought it was a stupid thing to do. You know, I'd never had a raging love affair or anything with anybody. I just sort of had lots of boyfriends. But I thought it was mad to get involved when we never knew when the war was going to end, really. And uh, it all just sort of came together. And... Uh, I've lived up here ever since. Is it difficult, do you think, being married to a writer? I would think it would be terribly difficult, but luckily Graham's always had lots of his own occupations. You know, he's a great great golfer, or has been. So when he once he'd retired, you know, he used to golf three or four times a week, and he was always involved in sort of other matters and committees and things. And um, we sort of just led parallel lives in a way
0: except when we go on holiday (laughs) Mm. Mm. I think a lot of people imagine it's tough for a man to be married to a very successful woman Oh, I don't think he minds
1: Mm. I don't think he has any objections and he Mm. does all the sort of um you know not exactly all the tax because the accountant does that but he does all the sort of the money side of it and which I think is good Mm. every now and again some awful tabloid Sunday papers that says here are the richest women in England and Mm. put me about number five which is all just a load of rubbish and um, it's extraordinary how little impact it makes on anybody it just shows how much people read their newspapers.
0: Do you suddenly get sent loads of begging letters when those articles appear?
1: No no not really I've not suffered from that at all Mm. I've got quite a big charitable trust in Edinburgh and every year we give away quite a lot of money but we do that within a committee and it's all frightfully official you know.
0: Was it always your intention to have a large family?
1: Yes I always wanted to have four children in fact I had five children but my number four died very soon after it was born so I had another one on the end which was the one in Cornwall and he's 40 and Fiona my eldest, is 51. So they're just in the ten years.
0: There aren't many careers that are very compatible with bringing up children, but writing certainly seems to be.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And uh, I used to, when I was doing short stories, when when the children were young, I used to do it on the kitchen table. And they never took any notice at all because I was there. Mm. Whereas if I'd gone and shut myself away, they'd have been beating on the door and screaming for me, you know. But because I was around, they didn't seem to think anything of it at all, really.
0: Well, you were you a great one for reading stories to your children as well before they went to sleep or whatever? Yes, I
1: did, but they all learnt to read themselves very quickly, and um, they always used to go to bed with their book and and turn their lamp off when they retired. You know, they never—they just went on reading until they went to sleep. Really, so they all were reading for themselves quite
0: soon. And did they read your books? Did you always test them out on their no. children?
1: Oh no, because no, because they were really basically grown-up stories, you know. No, they didn't read them. There was very very little impact was made, I think, on that one. In fact it was always very private. I was always very it was a very private thing I did. I didn't talk about it to anybody and the family just took it for granted, you know. I never got much publicity, which I didn't want anyway. I just liked the satisfaction of knowing that I was earning money doing what I wanted.
0: Did you secretly hope that your children would follow in your footsteps? I wanted them all to be
1: creative in some way, because as a child, I wasn't always creative. I mean, if I wasn't drawing or painting, I was making dolls' clothes or making things out of bits of cardboard or, you know, and I wanted them to be like that.
0: Where do you feel is your true home, Scotland or Cornwall?
1: Cornwall. But I would never live there now. I would always live up here, because I've lived here for so long and I've got so many good friends and... You know, it's our home.
0: And is it just as inspirational being up here as it is in Cornwall?
1: Yes, you have very
0: interesting people live up here. Very, uh, very solid um, sort of
1: social structure. Uh, I mean, in Cornwall, everybody's flying around, swapping wives and behaving like a lot of idiots. But up here, things really last a long, long time. And if there is a divorce, it's, it's rare. And it's usually quite a humdinger, but it doesn't often happen. There isn't very much community life. You know, the golf clubs are rather male-orientated and there aren't any country clubs and people don't go into pubs like they do in the South. You know, you wouldn't go and meet the so-and-so somewhere. Nobody ever eats out unless they're having business dinners. They all entertain in their own homes. So there's not the same availability of uh, marriages breaking up, I think.
0: Has there ever been pressure on you to live in London or somewhere perhaps more convenient for your publishers and no. so on? No, never. No, nothing like that. I think rather like the thought of me stuck
1: up here in Scotland.
0: Do you think moving to a city would have stifled your creativity a bit?
1: Yes, I'm, I, I'm afraid I do need the country. I need mm. big skies and trees and space. And I walk every day. I go for a long walk. And when I'm writing, that's very important because it's mm. sort of... It, I find it therapeutic and calming. It's my sort of relaxation is walking and getting out of doors or gardening. I garden quite a lot, but I just think it's so feeding. You know how lucky I am! It's such a lovely place, and you know, you do you calm down. I think.
0: Are you friends with other writers?
1: Aren't an awful lot of writers in this part of the world. A lot over on the west coast. Glasgow is absolutely seething <laughs> uh, with creativity. No, and I've never. I don't belong to clubs or pen clubs or old girls' associations. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. I don't sort of socialise madly with the writers.
0: Do you read much these days? And if so, who do you read?
1: Oh heavens, who have I been reading? Uh, I just read a wonderful book by Rose Tremaine called The Way I Found Her. Which I, I've just come back from a holiday in Tobago, actually, and I read an enormous amount out that. And I thought it was a wonderful novel. Um, now I read a lot, but I
0: read contemporary writers, and usually women. Is there one book over the years that you wish you'd written that somebody else wrote?
1: Well, I, I think there are probably dozens, yes. But I think the one I always think about is one that Elizabeth Jane Howard wrote, called Something in Disguise, which was a wonderful, wonderful story. And it was rather spooky, and it was funny, and it was terribly sad at the end but it was a, a wonderful love story between a a very young girl and a much older man and she handled it beautifully i thought i know her she came and stayed with me once or twice and i liked her enormously but she lives in essex and i never go to essex and another one i know quite well is mary wesley because when i was a child i used to go to a house called Boskenna, which was very glamorous and romantic and there was the daughter of the house, who was about 20s, and her 26, I suppose. And Mary Wesley was her great friend. Only then she was called Lady Swinfin. And she was frightfully elegant and terribly racy. And then I met up again with this old lady of 70 who'd suddenly written a bestseller. And I knew from reading The Camomile Lawn, I knew that I must have known her. I just knew... She's quite a formidable little person. So I went up to her and said, You know, I'm really sorry to intrude, but, you know, did you live in Cornwall? And she said, Yes, I spent the whole of the war down there, the house called Boskenna. And I said, My God, I know who you are. You're Mary Swinford. And she shrieked with laughter. And uh, I was about 11 when she was grown up, so I thought she was wonderful, frightfully slim and cigarette lighter, you know, this sort of thing. It was just so funny. Mm. Anyway, she's. She and I write quite a lot. I think she stopped writing now. You know, she's about 83. But she was just reliving all the fun she had during the war and in and out of bed with every free French, free Norwegian. <laughs> very racy lady. Um, very left-wing. And she married, finally married her lover, a wonderful man she adored. And he was a correspondent, foreign correspondent for The Times. And then he got Parkinson's disease and he finally died and she had no money at all. But she wrote a, a book called Jumping the Queue, and somebody picked it up and she never looked back. She made a lot of money. She did jolly well, went on writing by hand and she was able to buy herself a really pretty little old house in Top Ness and do things that she, she... The only thing she was sorry about was that she was too old to travel the way she'd like to, but... She just knew she could if she wanted to. Do you look back with any regrets upon your own career? No, I think it would be terribly churlish to say I wish I'd made the money earlier. I mean, it would, in fact, have been extremely useful. Uh, Not for everyday things, but for treats, you know, like skiing holidays and everything. I mean, we did them all, but always on a shoestring. But I wish, in a way, sometimes it, it had been a bit easier. But, you know, you can't be too ungrateful. I think it would be very ungrateful to be not to start saying, oh, I wish it had happened before, you know, because it didn't. (laughs) There's nothing you can do about it. And actually, before The Shell Seekers, funnily enough, everybody thought I'd sprung from nowhere. But I was doing very honourably with American sales and magazines and things and the new publisher. Before I wrote The Shell Seekers, I was was on to about 25,000 a year, you know, which is Okay, it's not riches, but it was quite an honourable salary. So I, I was really very well established long before anybody got to know about me.
0: What do you think has been the key to your success?
1: I think probably just going on and on and on at it and not getting discouraged when you didn't become instantly famous, you know. Being just grateful for the fact that you... Had a book published. It's paid off. It's in advance, and you've got a bit in your pocket, and some more people are going to buy it before it gets remaindered, and and also to realise, I think, I think, which I have always realised, one is that I always do what the editor tells me. I never say, oh, but you don't understand what I mean when he says you've got to cut this bit out, or you've got to put a bit in, or you've got to make the girl do this or the man do that. You don't say, oh, but you don't understand. That isn't what I meant. You say yes. "Uh, Yes. Okay. Right. And you do it. That's another reason for my success. And the other one I think is, is consciously, you never stop learning. Every year that goes past, you're more experienced. You know more about people. um, You have a greater breadth of vision. So you've Every year you can put that into your next book. You're getting wiser. You have a longer a longer view. You have a long back view. You can see how things work out. When you're young, however brilliant you are, you never have that. You will never have the long view from the top of the hill, which you do when you're older. Does
0: it matter to you what people think of your books?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I, a bad crit doesn't worry me in the very least. I think you can't please everybody all the time. And you've just got to. It's like. A, I said this to Robin, you know, it's like having a baby. And then you have sort of conceived the baby in ecstasy. And then you carry the baby. And then you have the baby in agony. And then when it can't, can hardly toddle, you shove it out into the world and let people hit it. But that's how it feels, because by the time you've finished a book, it is your child. But you have to learn to deal with that one as well. What's the best compliment
0: you've ever been paid?
1: Oh, Lord. Um, I don't think anyone in particular. I think I got thousands of fan letters from America after The Shell Seekers was published, and a lot of them were very sweet. Some of them were dreadful, but a lot of them were sort of said things like, you know... You understand, and uh, maybe something's got me through a bad time or took my mind or something, or they sat in a hospital and waited for news and read the book and, you know, were enthralled. I think those are quite nice things to have said to you. I'm not really particularly looking for... I mean, I've had all sorts of awards from Germany and America, which stand around in my office, basically. That's one, my bear, which I love. (laughs) But that doesn't quite touch the heart so much as these very. Some of those letters were very touching and sweet, and you felt, well, you know,
0: perhaps it wasn't all wasted, that something positive had been achieved. What is it with you in Germany? Because Germany's really taken you to their hearts. Uh,
1: I don't know, don't. I've been asked this so often, I simply don't know what it is. I think, I don't know if it's sort of the old thing of husband, home, and family, a little bit still ingrained in them also for some extraordinary reason they're mad about the English countryside they just seem to think it's the most romantic wonderful thing in the world you know with parks and yeah and great big houses Mm. and that sort of thing I mean they just simply can't have enough of them they go Mm. on selling and selling and selling and selling and they do things like The World of Rosamond Pilcher. Have you seen that book? No. And another one called Christmas with Rosamond Pilcher. I'll show <laughs> them both to you. It's sort of talk about milking the cow mm. which they just put together. And Is it grow. a mutual appreciation though? Do you go over there and I get used to go a lot. I haven't been lately and mm. I got I've got the Bambi Award, that little thing there I got from the Herzho mm. people and then the Axel Springer group did a golden camera you know they love these huge award ceremonies and everything and um, I got a golden pen or something but they're very very appreciative and in fact I like them enormously but I'm only meeting nice liberal publishers and things mm-hmm. and writers. I've got a wonderful publisher in Hamburg and I went to Vienna with Graham just for a weekend and I'm walking down the street people coming up and talking to me and saying, you know, didn't know you were in Vienna or something. Complete strangers. It was, it was very strange.
0: It is because one of the great beauties about being an author usually is that you can have great success but nobody bothers you because they no. don't know who you are. No, but it's become more than that because they've done a lot of these little
1: television films and then they made a film called The World of Rosmond Pilcher which gets shown over and over again and then they had these extraordinary books, you know, with the pictures in and... So everybody knows what I look like, and I've been on German television and done book signings, and it's just extraordinary, really. Do you kind of wish you'd been famous when you were younger? I don't think I'd have had time, Mm -hmm. really. It's very time-consuming, and uh, either I have to sort of organise everything at home for Graham. It's not much point in coming with me, because he doesn't speak any known language, and he's stone deaf anyway, Mm -hmm. and it really isn't much fun for him. So I usually have to sort of organise everything. And I do love it. I mean, it's tremendous fun flying off to Leipzig or somewhere. It just is a bit time-consuming if you're trying to write another book,
0: actually. Rumour has it that you're going to be 75 this year. Mm -hmm. Is that a cause for concern or celebration? Oh, I don't think it's a cause for celebration. I
1: don't think it's a cause for concern. Again, it's just something you can do nothing about.
0: Do you want to live to a very old age?
1: No, I don't want to live to a very old age. I think I'd, I, think probably 85 might be quite comfortable Then you turn your toes up and drop off the peg.
0: <laughs> Do you have, a, like, a perfect ending to your life?
1: I'd like to go to sleep in my bed. I don't want to be killed in a car crash. I think that would be horrid, be maimed and oh, awful. I've got a horror of car smashes. Or you could be weeding and have a nice little heart attack or something on a sunny day. Something like that.
0: (laughs) You're good at romantic endings.
1: Oh, yes, I'll find one. I mean, (laughs) shot by a jealous
0: wife. (laughs) How would you like to be remembered long after you've gone?
1: I think, I I suppose, long after as the the woman who wrote The Shell Seekers. I wouldn't mind being remembered for that. Or as somebody's mum or somebody's grandmother or something. I don't know. I don't know how I'll be remembered. I don't really know what people think about me. I think just as a writer, probably. That would be nice, just as a writer.